morning, lifting up our prayers to you. By virtue of our prayers, we acknowledge that you are good and you are loving. Like your son taught us, you are our heavenly father, gracious and giving good gifts to his children, faithful in sending the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your son. Jesus, Son of God, come down in flesh, lived among us. We thank you for the salvation that we receive, that we can hold fast to, that we can find peace and security and joy in, that was achieved and bought for us through the crucifixion crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. We pray again that the Spirit um, would speak this morning, that we would hear what you ha- would have to, to say to us and that we would um, allow it to just kind of seep into our hearts and our minds, that we would be transformed in a way that might bring us more of the life that you have um, come to give. And all these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you all. If you have a Bible, open up with me to John chapter 6. If you don't have one, uh, there's a black hardback underneath a seat uh, in front of you, hopefully. Feel free to open that up, John chapter 6. We are three weeks away from Easter, and Easter is like the big day in Christianity. It is the Super Bowl of resurrection celebrations. Every Sunday is a resurrection celebration. That's why we meet but once a year on Easter the church globally remembers and recognizes and celebrates and gets reinvigorated with the power of resurrection. On Easter Sunday, which is April 1st, April Fool's Day, I'll be preaching a Easter sermon, a sermon on the resurrection. And then the week after that, we're going to start a new sermon series, uh, four or five weeks, called Faith and Neuroscience. And we'll be looking at the ways that our faith, the wisdom of our scriptures, of the faithful people of God of old, interacts with, confirms, and sometimes is in tension with uh, some of the latest kind of cutting-edge research about humans and about our lived experience and about what makes for a healthy, flourishing human and what ultimately kind of destroys or takes away life. And so I'm super excited about that. Next to theology and neuroscience, it's kind of like my side hobby. Um, so I'll probably be exposed as someone who really doesn't understand it, but we're going to go for it. Um, all that to say, our, our series right now, we're going through the seven signs of John. This will lead us right up to Easter. And so this means we're on the fifth sign in John's gospel. John artfully presents for us seven miracles. He calls them signs, though, out of many that he could have chosen from. And he he tells us in John 20 the reason for this. He says, Of course Jesus did more signs than this, but these I have written so that you may believe in Jesus the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in him. Every one of these signs is supposed to lead us into a closer, deeper, trusting, faithful relationship with the Son of God. And in that faith, it's supposed to grant us life, the life of God, the life of eternity, the peace that surpasses all understanding. John calls these signs signs 
because he says they point to who Jesus is and how we might receive him into our lives with faith and through that find the life of God. We're in the fifth sign, and it's a, a short little story coming on the heels of the fourth sign. We'll remember sign one, water into wine, maybe my favorite. Sign two was the young official, the official son being healed. Sign three was the paralytic. Sign four was the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6. And now we come to sign five. Verse 16, we'll pick up in John chapter 6. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the Sea of Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So Jesus is absent. This is an important part of the story. As the characters are set up, as the narrative is introduced, Jesus is not in the picture. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they rode about three or four miles, this would have been about half the distance of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 12 miles wide, seven miles long. Um, To walk around the Sea of Galilee, to get from the east where they were to the west where Capernaum is, Jesus' home base, it's kind of mission central, um, would take a long journey. You have to take lots of detours. There's lots of natural terrain that kind of deters you. So by far the quickest way is just get in a boat, row yourself across uh, these seven miles to the east. Now the Sea of Capernaum is known still to this day for like very moody, violent flash storms. And so one moment it can be sunshine and fishing, and then the next moment it can be a life flashing before your eyes. The disciples tonight get this life flashing before their eyes experience. After they'd rode three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I. In Greek, this is also simply, I am. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It was a dark and stormy night. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, A Wrinkle in Time. I believe they just put out a movie with uh, Oprah herself uh, starring in it. And uh, the first line, actually, of A Wrinkle in Time is, it was a dark and stormy night. Maybe you're more familiar with higher literature, And so I would direct you to the peanut cartoons. (laughs) If you're familiar with this, Snoopy, there's a recurring storyline throughout the cartoon. Snoopy is trying to write a book. He comes back to this over and over again. And he only gets all the way ever into one sentence of his book. And it goes, it was a dark and stormy night. I think you can even buy a book by Snoopy that just has a page that says it was a dark and stormy night. At one point, Lucy's looking over his shoulder, and she's like, that's so stupid. This is not a great first sentence. It's trite. It's cliche. And then there's another comic where he reads it out to her, and she goes, well, good luck with the second sentence. But it was a dark and stormy night. That's the context for our story. This narrative, Jesus walking on the sea. We normally say walking on the water, but I think it's sea for a reason here that we'll explore is found in three Gospels, Matthew and Mark, two of the three synoptic Gospels, and also John. In all three of them, it comes right on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. 
all three gospel writers seem to want to connect these two stories. And indeed, I think uh, their connection um, points out something significant for us. But from very early on in the church's history, there was a deep imprint left on the people of God's memories about Jesus and his ability and power to walk on water. So you have the disciples. Jesus, if you remember from um, last week, after he feeds the 5,000 men, they try to force him to be king, try to take him by force. And so he does this kind of like special Jesus thing where he just like slivers out of the crowd. And he goes off into a, onto a mountain to be by himself. He commonly does this over and over again throughout the Gospels. He'll retreat, be by himself. Maybe there's a crowd of people seeking healing. Maybe he's teaching a crowd of people. Maybe he's just with his disciples. And he'll go, leave me alone. I'm going off by myself. And I'm going to connect with my father. I'm going to check in. I'm going to get the next cue, the next word, the next step of the mission. And so Jesus is absent. He's on the mountain. In the other gospel stories of this walking on water miracle, um, we're told that Jesus tells the disciples, go ahead and go back to Capernaum. This is where they spent their time, where they lived when they weren't traveling during his ministry. And he says, I'll meet you there. And so they get in the boat and they start to head that direction. Jesus is by himself on this mountain. Maybe the disciples figure He'll find another boat at a different time and meet them in Capernaum, or maybe he'll take that long walk, use that time of solitude as a time of prayer and reflection. But the disciples are in this boat. You have to remember, this is a first century boat. This is not our cool jet boats. This is a a wooden structure. Most likely they're rowing this boat across the, the sea. And all of a sudden it becomes dark. It was in the evening, and I don't know if you've ever had this experience, particularly on the sea on a boat, where all of a sudden the kind of outside peripheral views, as far as your eyes can go, start to get dark, and it starts to kind of come closer and closer and encircle you. And pretty soon, you can't see anything, which means you don't really know where you're going. The disciples do not have a GPS tracker, They're just fishermen. They really just go out a few hundred feet and fish and come back in. They're out about three and a half miles. We'll split the difference, say they're halfway to their destination, which also means it's very difficult to know where they're going. And they're in very deep water. It's not a situation that they're going to be able to swim out of. And all of a sudden, the sea starts to roar. The winds start to blow. The waves start to roll, and disciples are in trouble. They're in danger. I've been in a situation like this um, through uh, a family feud where my dad insisted on taking out a boat uh, on a day when the weather was scheduled to be inclement, and indeed we were trapped out there in this flash flood thunderstorm, and we couldn't see anything. The GPS didn't work, and at any moment we could have crashed into uh, something that was in front of us into the land that we didn't see we were, we were going towards. Any moment we could have been flipped over. These waves get really, really big. We're all huddled, life jackets. I'm holding on to my little brother. My mom and sister are crying. My dad is holding the steering wheel, looking like he still is in control and knows what he's doing. In my mind, I'm like, all right, this is kind of cool. There's a Bible story like this. 
It's not a pleasant situation to be in. This is a, a dangerous situation for the disciples. And in this situation, all of a sudden, in this darkness they can't see, a figure appears to them. A man, and he's walking. Now John doesn't say this. John tells the story a different way. In Matthew and Mark, we're told the disciples' first reaction was, this is a ghost, which makes kind of sense. We're on death's doorsteps. Now we're seeing floating figures above the water. The ghosts have come out early to take us to our graves. I know you're too advanced to believe in ghosts, but I would assure you in that moment, you would be a believer. And John, though, we're told that they recognized him. We're told, actually, that that's why they're scared. It's not that they see someone they don't recognize. It's that they see Jesus walking on water, and they weren't prepared for this. They didn't have those categories in their mind yet. Think about all the things we're used to in terms of the miraculous from reading stories and scripture. Then imagine being the first person to realize this is a possibility in the world. Jesus, as the Son of God, walks on water. Perhaps one day you and I in our resurrected glorified bodies will be able to learn how to walk on water. When the world is as it should be. Jesus walking, the Greek word here for walking is very interesting because it gives off a strong connotation of a very nonchalant, very slow-paced, very casual type of walking. Jesus is just strolling. And there's wind and waves, and there's thunder, and there's blackness, and he's just out in the park. And he's like, oh, hey, look, it's the disciples. And then they get afraid. They get afraid not because in this story they're in this dangerous situation, but because they see Jesus doing this casual dance on the water. And Jesus tries to assure them. He, he says, it's I, it is I. And he tells them not to be afraid. And then they receive him onto the boat. And then you get a miracle inside of a miracle. So technically the miracle is Jesus walking on the sea, but they're halfway to their destination. When Jesus gets onto the boat, a few minutes later they bump up against the shore and they're exactly where they set off to be. Perhaps when Jesus comes onto your ship, you're much nearer to your destination than you would ever be aware of and you could see or imagine or plan on. It's kind of like those Russian doll, dolls that kind of go and keep getting smaller. You've got the walking on the water, then you have the, um, the instantaneous arrival at their destination. This miracle is kind of like the water into wine miracle in that uh, you're kind of wondering, what objective good does this accomplish? Is this just a party trick? Now, the water and the wine obviously accomplished some good. It was some good wine, right? This is a public service, I believe. But here, perhaps the miracle is taking away the disciples' fear, we would think on first glance. But then again, looking closely, they're afraid because of the miracle that Jesus is walking on the water. So what is this sign pointing to? How does this lead us to faith in Jesus and to the life that we might receive in him. I do think that Jesus isn't doing a a parlor trick. He's not engaging in magic. Um, The sign points to many things. Uh, I want to look at some of them, and we'll do that by looking closely at the story and pointing out some key points here. First, I want to recognize the first thing Jesus says to the disciples. It is I. In Greek, 
This could be translated as the same formula as I am. This is a very significant self-title, self-designation. John's gospel does this quite a bit. There are these famous I am statements. In John 8, we'll get a very important one where Jesus will, will, will have the guts to say, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. And he almost gets killed in that situation. The reason being is because I am is the direct personal name of God in the Old Testament, the God of the Israelites. Now, by the first century, the Old Testament had been translated from Hebrew into Greek, and so they were using this formulation for the divine name, I am. But in the Old Testament, God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush, and he gives him a personal name. Sometimes we see lists of like the names of God. This is technically incorrect, like Jehovah, Jireh, things like that. These are epithets. These are titles of God. God has a name, though. He revealed his name as opposed to Zeus or Baal or any other god. And it is Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. I am who I am. I am who I will be. You can translate it in a few different ways. And this name is so holy you can barely touch it with a stick for the Jewish people. So when they copy their scribes, when they record these stories and keep the traditions going about their God, they quickly think this name is too holy to even write. And so they substituted for it. Early Hebrew doesn't have vowels, so they substituted for it the generic term in Hebrew, Lord, Adonai. And it's just the consonants. And so for a long time, as we started to learn more about ancient Hebrew, we figured out this Yahweh portion of it. And we combined the consonants of Yahweh with the vowels of Adonai, which is where you get the name Jehovah. Jehovah. Have you ever heard someone call God Jehovah? This was our first best guess at what God's name would have been pronounced like until we did some more research and studying and realized, oh, that was a substitute. They put in different vowels as to avoid saying the name of God. Even still to this day, Jewish people won't write out even the generic version of God. They'll put G slash D. It's a holy, holy name. Jesus, when he tells the disciples, I am, is making a brash assertion, assertion that he is the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob. He's the God who led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and through the wilderness. John has constantly flirted with the boundary line between God the Father and Jesus. And with these I am statements, you see that they are, in one real sense, one and the same. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. The concept of the Trinity, as we understand it, is not fully developed in the Bible, but it's there in like seed form. Which would mean like if we didn't come up with the concept of the Trinity in the 3rd or 4th century, we would have to come up with a new name for the same concept eventually. It's the only way to really account for the identity of God in the Bible. There's the Father, and there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. And they're all God. They're all worshipped. They all act like God. They all do the things that only God can do. Yet they're distinct from one another. Three persons, one being. This is 
the Trinity. Which makes this, this I am statement, makes this passage technically a theophany. A theophany, which I know you all know, is a word meaning of revelation of God. Theos, Greek for God, epiphany, of revelation. There's a long tradition in the Bible and in the um, uh, Yahweh's people's history of these theophanies. The first one, of course, is that Moses at the burning bush. God appears to Moses. He appears to Isaiah. He, the Mount of Transfiguration is a theophany. Jesus reveals his glory, that of the only God. And this makes sense of a few other details in this passage, because theophanies often occur with a formula. Usually, when God appears, people get scared. This is the first and primary reaction. They fall over, they act like they're dead. They say, I'm not worthy. There's something about still living in this sin-saturated world that we're still kind of involved in in a webbed way that makes us feel this intense pressure, apparently, when the presence of God is shining directly on us. He's right in front of us. And then do you know what the first word God usually says when he reveals himself to somebody who's afraid? Don't be afraid. Do not fear. I've come to give you good news. I've come to interact with you. I'm a good God. I'm for you. In a sense, this command after a theophany, do not be afraid, is the cosmic word that's sent out before any other words when Jesus becomes incarnate and the Son of God takes on flesh. God appears among us, this cosmic invasion. It's confusing. It's perhaps scary and disorienting. But we're told not to be afraid. In fact, in John's gospel, Jesus will say earlier in chapter 3, I've not come here to condemn people. I've come here to give life. Don't be afraid. And this command not to be afraid is actually, even apart from these theophanies, these revelations of God, one of the most cited um, commands, exhortations from God throughout the entire Bible. So I was doing just a little research this week, and it didn't take me very long with some um, Bible search tools. And I came up with a list of over 150 verses where God tells somebody not to be afraid. I mean, it's just all over the place. Genesis 15.1, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid. I am your shield. Your great reward, Deuteronomy 3.22, Don't be afraid. The Lord your God himself will fight for you. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is talking about not worrying about our food and our clothing, that God will provide for us in his abundance, three times he says this, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I love that this is in the Bible so often, and I also dislike that it's in the Bible this often. I like it because... God seemingly has a rightful peg on our nature. We're scared. I dislike it because it's not really easy for me to obey this command. My fear, my worry, my anxiety seems to kind of be pre-decision-making, pre-rational. 
It's there before I think of what to do or how to react. Don't be afraid, Jesus tells his disciples in this dangerous situation in the boat. Don't be afraid. Now, Jesus is walking on the sea when he reveals himself to be the son of the one true God. And as he's walking on the sea, we can clue into an important echo illusion that John is doing here. Remember, John's an artist. He doesn't include anything by accident. Sometimes, um, like when I was a kid in English class, we would read these classic novels and the teacher would go on and on and on about how this really means that and this is a reference to that. And I'd go, there's no way the author thought of all of this. We just have a lot of time on our hands and are making stuff up. And then when I got to um, my undergrad and grad work doing it with the Bible, I started to realize, well, no, there's validity to this. Writers often are much more brilliant than people give them credit for. And in anything that you write, I've written little, people will never really catch on to everything you intended. There's almost like little Easter eggs inside your writings, little illusions, little play on words that might refer to something or signify something else. In my writings, I've been known to, in, in some articles I, I did on some theological concepts, put in Coldplay song titles and sentences. No one's ever asked me about that, probably because they're not well-read, but I doubt anyone will ever ask me about that, right? It's just for me. It kind of fits with the context and it kind of amuses me, and so I put it there. John's an artist. He's a theological artist. If we look back at the original setting, of these two stories. In verse 1, chapter 6, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. There's two names to this sea. And John includes the second name. He could have just said Sea of Galilee. That's what he does in the Walking on Water story. But he clues us in on Tiberias. Now, Tiberius is a Roman emperor. And that sea had been named the Sea of Galilee for a couple thousand years. But like all empires, when the Roman Empire grew and took over, they conquer and they take and they appropriate. And so they renamed the Sea of Galilee to be about the empire. King Herod, one of the puppets of Tiberius, was the emperor, does this little project seemingly to amuse, to, to please his, his emperor. And they call it the Sea of Tiberias. Now, this clues us into perhaps a layer of meaning here with Jesus being God, with Jesus being the Messiah, the true king. You have a sea named after a false king, an empire king. And upon that sea, Jesus walks on top of it. The rules don't apply to Jesus. He doesn't get sunk down in the empire. For Jesus and his disciples, including you and me, we aren't left to sink or swim in empire like bloodthirsty sharks. We're not left to sink or swim in the empire like people who are just victimized by the powerful and greedy. Like Jesus, we're empowered to walk above empire, to walk above the world, 
to walk on top of it in victory. Even as it exists around us today, we form and participate in an alternate community, an alternate society called the church. And we get to do things a different way. We have kingdom economics. We have kingdom relationships. And these are often 180 degrees apart from how it works in the the cultures and societies and governments of world history. Now, the sea is also a symbol for chaos for the Jewish people. They weren't really seafaring people, the ancient Israelites. They just did some fishing near the shore. There were other cultures, other kingdoms that were very proficient in the sea. Um, But like Hurricane Harvey reminded all of us pretty personally, the sea is a dangerous place. Out of the sea come dangerous things. And so it very quickly took on the symbolic uh, understanding for the Israelites, where they reference the sea as chaos in the world, where they recognize the sea as the source of evil in the world. There's even a connection between the sea and evil empires. So in, in the book of Daniel, he has a vision, kind of the center of the book of Daniel, and there are four beasts that come out of the sea. And these four beasts are empires. Babylon, Assyria, Persia, Greece, Rome. And we're told the Son of Man comes down from heaven and defeats these beasts, walks over the empires, walks on top of the sea. We're watching Jesus act out his royal duty. We're seeing him fulfill his kingly role, and we're invited into the same community as the disciples to walk on top of this. Jesus is simply continuing to do the work of God, which is to bring order to a chaotic world and to bring peace or shalom to a frightened world. We can take this more personally. Jesus, as working on behalf of God, comes into our lives very individually, as families and as a community, And he seeks to take that which is chaotic and confusing and to make it orderly and beautiful. And he seeks to take that which is restless and unruly and anxiety-inducing, and he works to transform that into peace, into shalom. Now, with the sea being referenced, with the, the empire being referenced, Um, There's another reference here that's pretty clear when you read the chapter. These two stories are put back to back by all three of the gospel writers who include them because they think they should be seen together. What you see when you look at these two stories is you see a pattern of the Exodus. In the Exodus, Jesus, our God, provides manna from heaven to sustain the people in the wilderness. We see this with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus himself compares his bread of life, to the manna from heaven. And you also see the people of God walk across the Red Sea and make it across safely. The point here doesn't be that Jesus makes it across safely as much as uh, in the Old Testament there are references to this Exodus act, the kind of paradigm for salvation in the Old Testament, that say God walked on the waters, God walked on the sea. The imagery almost being like God goes before them and makes these huge footprints and displaces the water. 
and his people walk after him. Again, this is what Jesus has come to do. He's come to free us. He's come to do the ultimate work of victory. Like the Israelites being rescued out of slavery in Egypt and taken to the promised land, Jesus has come to free us from slavery to sin and death and evil. You see, Egypt, an empire, was not the real problem. Paul tells us we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight against the principalities and the powers that control and manipulate flesh and blood. You can get rid of the Egyptians, but you'll still have the Romans. Jesus comes to fight a deeper, more powerful battle against sin and death and evil itself. He frees us and takes us on a journey to eternal life, to resurrection, to the life of the new age with him where sin is done away with, where there's no pain, where there's no sickness. Jesus has come to do this work of God as God himself in the flesh, as our king. And then lastly, I think we can take this to a more intimate, personal level. If you are aware of this, one of the most common symbols for the church and paintings or icons in Christian history is of a boat in rough waters. The disciples in rough waters seem to represent you and I going through our lives in the waters. At times chaotic, at times so dark we don't know the way forward. We don't know what will happen. At times being pushed up and down by the winds and not knowing whether we can continue going or we'll be overwhelmed and collapse. And it's in those times that Jesus appears to us, often unlooked for, uninvited. In fact, I would encourage you in the more chaotic, dark times of your life to be on the lookout for Jesus. Because this is, I think, characteristically, when he appears. And when you see him, when he appears, you, like the disciples, must receive him. Invite him into your boat. And what you'll find over and over and over and over again is that he will take you safely to your destination. And you might actually be much nearer to it than you can imagine in this stormy perspective. I think all of us here can agree life has kind of been stormy for us. Sometimes not so bad. Sometimes some breezy, sunny days out on the lake. But sometimes some hurricanes. I think we've all been in situations now or at other times where we don't know the right move to make. We're trapped in a boat in the middle of a sea without any light. We don't know where to go, and we don't know what's going to happen when we get there. We're filled with fear. The waters get choppy in our relationships, our finances, our families start to get more chaotic, start to get more overwhelming. But John tells us, here, in fact, is where we will meet Jesus, the one who brings peace, the one who brings salvation. My own conversion story happened similar to this. 
I was a young kid and I had a lot of anxiety and depression problems and a lot of trouble. Um, was was pretty down and uh, I had insomnia. Still do, but had it then. I wasn't sleeping through the night at all for a period of a few months. And and one night, for no particular reason, I picked up a little like Bible, kids Bible that was on my bookshelf. Probably hadn't touched it in years. And just to spend time, right? There's not a lot to do in the middle of the night. The Summer Olympics were on for a little bit, so I just got really into volleyball. <laughs> but then that was taken away from me. And I picked it up. For some reason, I just opened up to Matthew and just started reading. I've always liked reading, even as a kid, and so I just enjoy it on face value for the literature, a lot of the, the passages in the Bible. I read through the book of Matthew, and I get to the end, and Jesus is resurrected. He sends the disciples out on mission, and he says... All authority has been given to me. I'm in charge. Something new has begun. And I can take you there. And for whatever reason, something clicked inside of me. And I just said, I thought, I felt that if I had any hope out of this storm, if there's any possible way to find my way through this, it's probably with this man. And sure enough, as I received him, started to follow him, started to trust in him, the path was made clear. Now don't get me wrong, the path continues to be bumpy and chaotic and stormy because we're still waiting for the day in which Jesus fully appears, comes back, returns, and gets rid of all the chaos in our lives. That's why Revelation says there's not going to be a sea in the new heaven. There's probably still going to be bodies of water. He's probably referring to there's not going to be evil that comes out of the sea. It's not going to be a source of chaos and destruction anymore. Those things won't exist on the new creation in our eternal experience of life. I'll, I'll leave us, I'll end today with a quote from one of my favorite theologians, Patristic Church Father, um, I wrote my master's thesis on him, Cyril of Alexandria. And he talks about how this story can tie into our, our everyday lives. And I think he does it better than I could do. So, so we'll do this. He says, We say then that Jesus ascended into heaven as onto a mountain. That is to say, being received up after his resurrection from the dead which is in a degree our situation. Jesus promises to always be with us through the Holy Spirit, but he is still absent at the Father's right hand, like the disciples in the boat. And when this takes place, then his disciples alone, by themselves, a picture of the church throughout the years of time, swim through the billows of the present life as a kind of sea, meeting with varied and great temptations, Enduring no contemptible dangers of teachings at the hands of those who, um, from their fear and every danger, who war against the gospel preaching, they'll be freed from all evil, shall rest from their toils and misery. And when Christ shall appear to them hereafter in his power, and having the whole world placed under his feet, I deem him and his walking on the sea as signifying since this sea is often taken as a type of the world that we live in. As it's said in the Psalms, this great and wide sea 
There are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. And when Christ cometh in the glory of his Father, as it's written, then shall the ship of the church and its saints, you and I, they shall sail. They who walk with faith and love toward God are above the things of this world without delay, without toil, and they will gain the land that they were going to. For it was their aim to attain unto themselves the kingdom of heaven. Maybe with John 6 and the fifth sign we receive, Snoopy can end his story finally. It was a dark and a stormy night. We continue to be dark and stormy nights. But God has entered into our world to appear to us, to take away our fear, and to lead us to our destination. And sometimes our entire life can seem like a really long storm. But in the history of all things, you map this out on a timeline with eternity. These years that we have are are a blink. And before you know it, you'll seem like you're only halfway there, and then you'll bump up against the shore, and Jesus will be back, and will be ushered into the life of heaven. And Snoopy will finally get published. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time of worship this morning. I thank you for the scriptures that you have given us. I thank you for our ability to study them, to dig into them, for our ability to receive the wisdom of those who have read before us and notice things that perhaps we might not notice. I pray that you would allow us to take the truths of this sign and to implant them within ourselves. That the Jesus who walks onto the water would be the same person we place our faith in. We put all of our trust in. And by doing that, we rejoice in the promise that we'll reach our destination of life and joy and peace. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that all of God's people this morning prayed, saying, Amen.